Good morning, Harvest. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, open them to John chapter 10. We're going to be in the first 10 verses of John 10. And uh, as you're turning there, I want to start off our time together by asking you a question. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you feel like, man, I am getting pushed to my limit or I'm about to hit my breaking point and I'm going to lose my mind? Uh, I remember there was a time where this happened with me very, very clearly when I was in college. It was my last month of my senior year. I was getting ready for finals and it was a Friday uh, early in the morning. I woke up and uh, Mary was like, hey, do you want to grab breakfast or do you want to hang out today? She said, I got to babysit in the evening but I'm free uh, during the day. And I said, you know what? I've actually got a little bit of a stomach ache. I'm not feeling well. I'm just gonna stay in my room and study and hopefully feel better. Well, as the day went on, um, the pain in my stomach was getting progressively worse and worse. And it started as a dull ache and it by three or four in the afternoon, it was hurting. And uh, by 7 p.m., I called Mary, who was babysitting, and I'm like, hey, hon, I'm going to go to the hospital. I, I think my appendix might be sick. I, I think I might have to get it taken out. And uh, she was able to get her babysitting covered. She's like, I'll meet you at school. I'll go with you. So we arrive at the hospital at 7.30 at night. And what we learned is that when you go to uh, Northwestern Hospital in downtown Chicago at 7.30 on a Friday night and your symptom is a stomach ache, you're not at the front of the line. You're not a very high priority. And we had people who came in who had gotten in a bar fight and they'd gotten a bottle broken over their face and their face was all cut up and bleeding and they were instantly seen right away. And I, we were just told, hey, just sit and wait your turn. Well, after we'd been there about two or three hours, Mary went up to the desk and the nurse and she's like, you know, my uh, fiance's stomach is really hurting. When are we going to get seen? And uh, the lady told Mary, she's like, well, is he bleeding? And Mary goes, no. And she's like, well, our, our rule is, is if you're not bleeding, you're probably not going to get seen right away. So he's going to need to wait in line. And Mary was like, well, I can make him bleed if that would help. But we just kept getting passed over and over. And we didn't really get seen for about four or five hours. So now it's about midnight and I am going to get checked. And the doctor, the check went like this. He literally poked on my stomach and said, does this hurt? And I said, yes, that hurts a lot. And he's like, yeah, your appendix is sick. We're going to have to get it taken out. And so he goes, um, take this drink. We're going to give you a drink. You've got to drink it. It's going to help our imaging. Then you're going to get a, a scan and we're going to see what we're dealing with. And they just kind of rolled me into a hallway. I didn't even have my own room at the point, at this point. And they're like, all right, Cal, take this drink. And they gave me a milk carton that has this drink in it. But the problem was the drink was completely frozen solid. It was an ice cube in the carton. They didn't realize it was frozen, but it was frozen. So we're trying to break it with a straw. Mary's holding it, trying to warm it up. And about 20 minutes later, the nurse comes by. I was like, why haven't you drinking your drink? And Mary, who's like the most patient, kind person I know is like, what would you like us to do? It's frozen. We've been here six hours now. Someone just helped my fiance. So the lady just kind of rolls her eyes, gets us a new drink. I drink the drink. We go through the scans. I go into surgery. And by this time, my folks have driven down from Chicago. They know I'm having surgery. They know that I'm going to have to go home and recover for a little bit. And, uh, I don't know if you've ever been in surgery before, but when people come out of anesthesia, a lot of people come out really sick. Some come out kind of loopy. Apparently when I come off of anesthesia, I come out angry. And um, 
I, I remember waking up in the room and being very, very foggy. And I was told, hey, you're gonna be rolled back to your waiting room where Mary and your folks are. And again, it's all a little bit fuzzy for me, but here's what I remember about what happening is, is the lady that rolled me, she had a manila folder that had my file on it. And I remember her putting it down right on my incision. I don't think she knew where my surgery was and she placed it right on where I just had surgery and it hurt a lot. And I kind of yelled out in pain. Well, I think that that threw her off and made her nervous. But as she was wheeling me to the room, she banged into the wall at least three times. And so we finally get to the room and my dad's sitting there and I see my dad and I'm like, hey dad, I want a new nurse. And the lady's standing right there, she can hear me. And my dad's kind of like, what are you talking about? What's going on? And I'm like, she's just banged me into the wall three times and she dropped the folder right on my incision. And my dad's like, Cal, calm down. She's not your nurse. She's just bringing you into the room. And I was like, good, because she'd be a terrible nurse. Like I was losing my mind and my dad just started laughing. And he's like, wow, do you wake up angry? Like I was just done. I was tired of being in the hospital. I was tired of being in pain and I wasn't responding great in the moment. Well, in the notes for our sermon this morning, I've titled the message, Push to the Limit, because we're going to see a moment where Jesus is pushed to his breaking point. And thankfully, uh, he responds way more articulately and way more graciously than I was able to. Um, but here's what's going on. Here is why Jesus is pushed to the limit in John 10. Do you remember what happened in John 9? We looked at it last week. Jesus healed a man who was born blind. And the man went to the temple and the Pharisees, rather than celebrating and rejoicing to God for the miracle that had been done, they got really mad that he was healed on the Sabbath. So they interrogated him and they interrogated his parents. And when the man said that Jesus healed him, they tried to get him to deny that it was Jesus. And the man wouldn't deny that it was Jesus. So they kicked him out of the temple. And the man comes back to Jesus and Jesus sees that the Pharisees have kicked this man out who has just been healed and Jesus is angry. And the words he says in John 10 is a response to what just had happened. A crowd has gathered, the Pharisees are there and Jesus is getting pushed to his limit. And uh, here's the big idea this morning. What we're gonna see in John 10 is this, is that Jesus draws clear lines that demand honest reflection. What Jesus is going to say is really important. It's very clear and it demands that we take it seriously. So look at John 10 in verse one. Here's what Jesus says. Again, there's a crowd gathered around him. He's addressing the people, the man who's been healed and the Pharisees. He says this, truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter, by the, sh he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and he leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them and the sheep follow him for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus starts to use this analogy about a gatekeeper and a door and the sheep following the shepherd. And the crowd's like, Jesus, what are you talking about? We don't understand what you're saying. So in verse seven, which is where we're going to live, verses seven through 10, he gets very clear and very specific in what he's trying to communicate. He says this. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. 
All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus calls himself the door. This is a name he gives himself. And here's the first thing we see in this text this morning, church, is that what Jesus is saying is that he is our only passport to salvation. He's saying he is our credentials. He's very, very combative here. He's very straightforward. And what he's saying is he's looking at the Pharisees and he's saying, you guys are counterfeit. You guys are thieves, you're robbers, and you're liars. And he's looking at the man who's been healed from blindness. And he's saying, hey, it doesn't matter what they say about you. It doesn't matter what they think. I am the door. I am the one you should follow. I am the one who will lead you to salvation. Look at verse nine. He says this. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus is saying, I am the only one who can offer salvation. He's not saying I'm a way or a door. He's saying I'm the one. I'm the way. I am your passport. So I don't know if you've ever traveled overseas before, but when you travel overseas, passports are really important. Uh, we've taken a couple of groups from our church to Israel. And if you were to ask Jody Flickema or Carolyn Moeller or, or myself, the thing that we're worried most about when we're traveling with a big group of people overseas is that someone in the group loses their passport. Because if you don't have your passport, you're not getting out of the country. I remember the first time we did a trip to Israel four or five years ago now, um, on the flight home, we'd gotten all the way to O'Hare. And one of the ladies in our church, as she was leaving the airplane, somehow her passport fell out of her bag somewhere between customs and the airplane. So we already made it to America. We get to customs and she can't find her passport anywhere. And the customs agent's like, you can't leave here until we see your passport. And we're like, yeah, but she obviously had her passport because she got on the plane from Germany. She's an American citizen. Like, there's got to be a way to figure this out. And like, no, you cannot leave if you don't have your passport. And, and thankfully, after about 40 minutes, someone else found her passport and we were able to go home. But it was like, without this passport, there's no entry. That's what Jesus is saying. There is no entry into salvation without faith in me. Again, the big idea, he's drawing clear lines. You either believe in Jesus or you don't. I remember I had a conversation with Carolyn Moeller. She's my sister-in-law and one of the worship leaders at this church. And uh, she goes, man, I had a really interesting conversation. It was the week of Christmas. And she's like, I was at Walgreens or Walmart. She was at a store and she goes, I was checking out. And the guy who was helping me check out just out of nowhere, just kind of stared off into the distance and goes, do you think people still really actually believe in all of this Jesus stuff? And Carolyn was just like shocked by that statement. And she looked at him, she goes, yeah, I think people do believe in Jesus. She goes, I believe in Jesus. And the guy was like, oh, I, I didn't mean to be offensive. He goes, I actually, I grew up in church and I, and I used to go to church, but I don't really go to church anymore. And Carolyn goes, well, what do you believe about Jesus? And he goes, I think I believe in his words but I don't really believe in him. And Carolyn was like, you know, it doesn't really work that way. 
You can't believe in the things he says and not believe in who he is. And to her credit, she actually went back to church and got an invite card to our Christmas Eve services, went back to the store and invited him to Christmas Eve. Hey, it sounds like you're searching. Come learn about Jesus. Come to our Christmas Eve service. But the thing about Jesus is he's either the truth or he isn't. He's either Lord or he isn't. He's either our savior or he's not. Jesus is saying, I am the door. I am the way you enter into salvation. Okay, but the thing Jesus is also doing is he's also drawing our attention to the fact that there are counterfeit credentials. There are false gospels. There are things that offer us the promise of life and satisfaction, but will ultimately steal our life and our joy. So what I want to do right now is I want to talk about four false credentials or things we tend to put our hope in. And what I've done is, is I've divided them up two and two. I want to talk about two false credentials that tend to live inside the church and two that tend to live outside the church in our culture so let's start with us. Here, here are two false credentials we tend to put our hope in inside the church. Here's the first. We tend to believe that God's holiness needs to lead us to legalism, right? Here, here's what I mean. Just like my dad said last week, the best lies have a portion of truth in them. And so what we know is that God is holy and that he cannot be in the presence of sin and he hates sin. So then we believe this lie that because we are not perfect and because we are sinful, that God must be angry with us or hate us or that God will not love us or accept us until we get our act together and become a better version of ourselves. This was the Pharisees' problem. They were so consumed with doing the right things and following the law and even like going above and beyond what the law said that a man is healed from blindness. Jesus, the Messiah is here and he heals the man and they're angry it happened on the Sabbath. They're missing the forest through the trees. They're so consumed with their rules that they're actually angry at what God is doing. Look at me. We fall into this same trap all of the time. We want to make our relationship with God more about what we are doing, more about how we are doing and our performance than what Jesus has done for us and what it means to simply know and love and delight in our relationship with God. We want to turn our relationship with Jesus into a process or into a checklist. And um, I'm about to say something that's probably gonna get me in a little bit of trouble right now, but that's okay. He, he, here's one of the things that I'm skeptical of, or one of the things that I think can be a big problem in the church. Um, I really don't like read through the entire Bible in a year programs. Those have never really settled well with me. And here's why, do me a favor. Even if you're sitting at home right now, raise your hand if you've ever started a read the Bible through a year plan and then failed to finish it. I know I have for sure. And so guess what I feel like after I do that is I feel like a failure because I set out this goal. I set out this thing that I was going to do and the heart behind it was good, but my relationship with God became more about my ability to complete a process. Now, listen, hear me. What God wants from us is he wants us to know him and love him and worship him. And you need to know God's word if you're going to know God. 
And by the way, there are some people that I know that the reading through the Bible in a year and being disciplined and doing it for 20 minutes every day, that works for them and it's helpful and it's useful and they love it and it's a blessing. And that's awesome. That's amazing for them. But people have different learning styles and they relate to God and his word in different ways. And what we want is we want a genuine relationship with God. We don't want a structured process or thing we have to go through. There are people that I know and I respect that are like my relationship with, the God, with God is I get one chunk of time for about two hours once a week and I study the word and I pray and I meet with him and that sustains me for the rest of the week. That's amazing. Some people are like, I don't like just sitting and reading the word. I listen to it on my drive to and from work. That's awesome. I love listening to sermons. That's how I learn from God's word. And that's how I am motivated to follow God. Other people, it's primarily through worship music. I'm concerned about when we take what God wants is a relationship and love, and we try to turn it into a process where it's about our success or failure more than it is about what Jesus has done in us responding in love and worship. I had a really um, transformative conversation with an older pastor a few years ago. He was in his 60s and he's led a church for decades. And he goes, I've hit the point in my life in ministry where I am way more concerned with the fruit that my people are producing in their lives as a result of following Jesus than I am the watering schedule. And I said, what, what are you talking about? What does that mean? And he goes, listen, what Jesus says, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, he will bear fruit. So the proof that we are following Jesus is our lives will produce fruit that is godly. And he goes, so in my life, if I am walking with the Lord, if I'm excited to worship him, if I'm excited to go to church, if I'm in biblical community, if I have accountability in my life, if people know me, if I'm loving God, if I'm quick to repent, if I'm loving my wife well, and if I'm being faithful with what he's called me to do, then I know that my relationship with God is good and I don't need to be concerned is, man, am I in the Bible every day or, or how long is this going? I'm more concerned about the fruit my life is producing. Now, if I find my heart is in a place where I'm not excited about worship or I don't want to go to church or I'm being um, um, reclusive or, or there's things in my heart that aren't right, then I've got to ask, what's going on? What's wrong with my relationship with God? What's wrong in my worship? And I've got to focus in on the watering schedule because the fruit isn't good. We need to be careful not to turn our relationship with God into a checklist that's more about our strength and our accomplishments. I want a genuine just love and delight and joy in the fact that we know Jesus and he has given himself for us. Can you say honestly right now that you love Jesus, want to follow him and delight in your relationship or is it a tedious checklist, to-do list, and we might need to reconfigure some things if that's the case. Okay, here's the next false gospel we, we tend to fall into the church. It's this. It's that God's kindness leads us to apathy. 
So the other side of the pendulum is, man, God is so gracious and he's so good and he is so loving that we can kind of do whatever we want and we don't need to prioritize following him and we can get very, very apathetic in our lives and in our walk with Christ. We believe that God is just the sweet grandparent who are gonna spoil us whether we deserve it or not. Um, it was interesting, about a month ago, in our Advent series, Pastor Connor was preaching and he gave a very good but difficult and convicting challenge to our church. I don't know if you remember it or not, but he said, listen, he was talking to uh, parents of adult children. And he goes, listen, if you have adult kids coming home who aren't married, but they're bringing with for the holidays their girlfriend or boyfriend or their fiance, he goes, don't let them stay in the same room overnight. He's like, God's word is clear that sex is designed only within the context of marriage and don't allow them to sin by putting it on a platter and making it easy for them. It's okay to say, listen, in this house, we're gonna honor the Lord and follow the Lord and out of respect for me and respect for what I believe and respect for the Lord, can you guys stay in separate bedrooms if you're home for the holidays? Well, it was interesting because a few people got really, really angry that Connor said that. And, and we fielded some complaints. Like, I can't believe he would say that at church. And, and the argument was, listen, God is loving and God loves. And, and I just don't think Jesus would ever do anything that would push anyone away. So I don't like that Connor said that because it made the gospel seem harsh and condemning. And I don't think Jesus would do that. That was the complaint against what Connor said. Okay, here's my response to that complaint. If you believe that Jesus was only ever loving and would never do anything to call out sin or push people away, you've believed in a false gospel and the Jesus you believe in is a figment of your imagination. He's not the Jesus of the Bible. You will never find in the gospels, Jesus ignore sin or not call sin out or not deal with it when it was in his power to do it. He never once made the choice to minimize or neglect sin for the sake of relational comfortability. He was perfectly full of grace and truth. He told Peter, get behind me, Satan. He told his disciples, go into the villages and preach the gospel. And when the people reject you, dust off your sandals and keep going. He was okay with being rejected and with conflict. I think the best example of what it means to be full of grace and truth is found in the passage we looked at a couple weeks ago with Pastor Chris and the woman caught in adultery, right? There was a woman who was guilty. She'd been caught in adultery. And guess what Jesus does? He defends her. He rescues her, he loves her, he saves her, he is kind to her when everyone else wants to condemn. And then after he saves her and rescues her, guess what he says? He says, you need to go and sin no more. He addresses the issue in her life. And he says, these things need to change. You need to move from this. You need to repent and follow me. He loved her, he saved her, he was gracious, and he was full of truth. Even in the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus, right? Zacchaeus is hanging out in the tree. No one else wants to be around him because he's a tax collector. Jesus seeks him out, befriends him. Hey, I'm gonna come to your house. I wanna hang out with you. But what was the result of Jesus hanging out with Zacchaeus? Zacchaeus was like, I've got to reorient my entire life. 
I used to be selfish. I used to take from people. I need to be selfless. I need to be generous. I need to give. Everything about me needs to change as a result of meeting Jesus. That didn't happen without Jesus saying anything. Jesus would address the issues in our hearts. We can't fool ourselves into believing that just because God is gracious means that we can be apathetic and not deal with sin in our lives or have the courage to call sin out in the lives of one another. All right, now I want to move to the false credentials in the church. And I want to talk about two that are outside the church, but that we are inundated with every day in all areas of our life in the culture that we live. Here are two kind of false hopes or false gospels our culture will tell us. Here's the first. The first is our differences define our relationship, that we are defined by how we are different from one another. You see this all over the place. One of the things our world tries to do is it tries to take all of who we are and minimize us into just very specific parts of who we are. It tries to define us by very small and simple categories. And it might be you are your race, or you are your gender, or you are your sexual orientation, or you are rich, or poor, or employer, or employee, or even more so, you are your politics and who you vote for. That's who you are. That is what defines you. And what happens is, is we believe that the only people that can understand us, that can sympathize with us, that can speak into our lives, and that actually care for us are those who are just like us. Our culture is very good at dividing people and placing people into boxes, usually pitted against one another. And that almost always leads to anger, strife, and division, right? What I love about the gospel is what it does is it says, no, actually, all of us in the most important things are way more alike than we are different, right? All of us have been fearfully and wonderfully made by God. Like, think about that. Like, I think we could think for an entire week and chew on what does it mean that the God creator, sustainer of the universe creates us with fear, with that level of care that you are valued, you are loved, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. We are all alike in that. We all have value. We all have dignity. We all have worth. All of us need a savior, All of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We find ourselves in the same exact condition, desperate for salvation. All of us have been sacrificially loved by God himself, that God sent himself, Jesus Christ, to take our sin, die on the cross, that we might experience eternal life. All of us need grace every day. All of us don't live up to our own expectations. All of us make mistakes, have regrets. We all are in need of grace. The gospel says these are the things that unite us. So in the things that we are different, we can be gracious, we can have compassion, we can learn from each other, but we can love one another despite our differences because the things that matter most, we have unity in and have common ground in Christ. We can be more about what we are for than what we are against. Okay, here's a second lie that our culture will tell us. It's this, it's that freedom is found in the absence of authority. That if we wanna truly be free, we've gotta push away all rule, laws, and authority. And again, look at me, we know that this is crazy, right? We know that this doesn't work. Like, like think about it. Imagine if you came to church uh, on a Sunday and I said, you know what? 
Um, we really want to be people who are free in Christ. So we made a change. We didn't tell you, but we decided that we want our children specifically to experience freedom in Christ. So right now in children's ministry, there are no rules and there are no adults and your children are kind of doing whatever they want right now. Aren't you glad they're so free? Right? You wouldn't be excited about that at all, would you? You'd be like, oh no, I've got to go get my kids because this building's going to light on fire in about seven minutes if all these kids are left to themselves. Like freedom is not found in the absence of authority, right? We know this even for us as adults, right? If our country was like, hey, in order to be free, we need to abolish all laws and order and rule of law, would we actually practically be more free? No, we wouldn't. We would be in danger. And we'd probably be go getting our guns, bunkering in our houses, trying to defend ourselves because without laws, life actually gets very, very dangerous and scary. It doesn't get more free, right? Freedom is not found in the absence of authority or laws. It's found in submitting yourselves to the good rights rulers and the laws that they bring. So here's the thing. If we know this, then why do we so often think we know better for what our life should hold for us and what we think we want? Why do we think we know better than God, right? Practically, we buck against God's right rule and authority on our lives all of the time, right? How quickly do we just get selfish? And I'm gonna respond how I wanna respond because it's how I want to respond so much of our anxiety, our stress, our worry, our anger, our grumpiness, our misery flows out of when we are obsessed with ourselves, neglecting what God calls us to do and living for our own name and glory. Do you know that in scripture, everything that God calls us to do in his word is actually for our good and for our freedom? Do you know that the Bible tells us, hey, don't get drunk with wine and don't get addicted to alcohol. You know why the Bible calls us to do that? Because addiction imprisons people and it destroys lives and relationships. And by the way, people make unwise decisions they regret when they're drunk. Like I've been in a lot of counseling cases and been in the room with a lot of people and I've never heard someone say, yeah, man, I got wasted on Friday night and I made this string of incredibly well thought out and wise decisions. Right? It doesn't happen. We make poor decisions. So God is saying, hey, be careful with alcohol and it's for our good and our protection. Right? Guess what the Bible says? Hey, guard your tongue. Have control over what you say. You know why? Because you can burn bridges and set relationships on fire in a sentence. And you can say things that wound people and hurt people and that you will regret for years because of a second worth of a lack of self-control. There are things you can't always take back, right? The Bible tells us to forgive because bitterness rots our hearts from the inside out. Hey, you need to release it. You need to forgive. You need to trust the Lord so you can have joy and you can be free and you can move on from the offense that was made against you. The Bible tells us to be generous with our money, to give back to God, to be generous with others. You know why? Because God knows that money is something that can quickly have us rather than us having it. It can imprison us. It can control us. It can dictate our lives. And God's saying, I want you to be free of that temptation. And I want you to be free of being ruled by your bottom line. Live as someone who is generous and enjoy the fruit of those relationships that come out of your generosity. One of the things Mary and I are constantly telling our kids 
is that you are most miserable when you are self-absorbed. When you're thinking about yourself, everything ugly in our lives tends to surface. All right, look at verse nine. Look what Jesus says. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and he will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So what Jesus does, he goes, listen, these Pharisees, they're thieves and they're robbers and they're liars. Don't believe the lies. Don't believe the false gospels that are out there. Find your true life in me. And what he does is, is he's going to say, hey, here's what true life in me looks like. And the first thing he shows us is he's like, there is true safety when you enter in my door. Look what he says. He, he says, you will find pasture. Do you know pasture represents safety? He hears what he's saying, that if you follow me, that if you enter through the door that is Jesus, you will be safe. Jesus is saying, I will protect my sheep. They won't get lost, right? Romans 8 says, nothing can separate us from the love of God. You know why? Because we have a shepherd who knows his sheep and he is with us and he is leading us. He's not absent. Jesus is saying, nothing will get to you unless it passes through my hands. He's saying, I am the door. Nothing comes in or out unless it comes through me, right? That's why James 1 says, consider it joy, my brothers, when you face various trials of different kind, because Jesus is perfecting your faith by allowing you to experience this difficulty, your good shepherd is allowing trials to enter into your life because he loves you and he's growing you in the process. You're not alone, you're safe. I just heard this week about a woman in our church who is battling cancer. And uh, she has just started going through chemo treatments and she goes to the hospital once a week. She had a port inserted and she gets her, her chemo in and she is happy and she's joyful and she's telling the people she works with about Jesus and the nurses and the doctors will come to her and be like, why are you so happy? Why do you have so much joy? You're going through a very significant, scary thing. And her answer is, is I have the Lord and it's gonna be okay. And God is with me and he's faithful. This is what it means to know that you're safe. Listen, Jesus promises us that when we follow him, we will be safe till the moment he brings us home. I don't know what 2024 looks like for you. I don't know what you're facing right now. I don't know what's going to be on the horizon. I don't know what difficulties and trials are coming. Here's what I know for certain. We are safe in the arms of Christ because he promises that when we are in him, when we trust him, when we put our faith in him, we will find pasture. And then the second thing he offers us is true freedom. Look at verse 10. He says, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Jesus is saying the life that you were meant to live, the life that is free, the life that has joy, the life that is secure, the life that you were created to live, I am the doorway to that life. He's asking a very, very simple question. Do you trust me? Practically every day, we are going to either choose freedom in Christ, freedom in worship, freedom in loving Jesus, or we're going to choose the lies. And what Jesus is saying is, hey, listen, you can stop running this, this rat race of trying to be good enough on your own. 
Hey, you can live a life that matters and has meaning. Hey, you don't need to be defined by your failures or who you're against. Hey, you don't need to figure things out on your own. You can have the life you were designed to live. You can know and love your creator, but it's only through me. Will you live by faith? He goes, I have come for your good that you may experience joy, not just in eternity, but today. He's getting to the very nature of faith. Church, here's a question. What voice is loudest in your life? Who do you listen to when life is scary or a decision is unclear or you don't know what to do? Whose voice gets to win? Jesus is saying, if you let my voice win, you will find safety and freedom and it's available for all of us. Are you walking in freedom today? Then here's the last thing he offers. It's this, it's eternal hope. It's eternal hope. Did you know that in the book of Revelation, there's almost an entire chapter dedicated to this idea of doors or gates that are going to be open to us in the new heaven, in the new earth, and in the new Jerusalem? Uh, Here's what I'm going to do. I'm gonna read an extended passage from Revelation 21, where it talks about what eternity is going to look like. And it's gonna focus on these gates. So do me a favor, as much as you can, try to picture in your mind what I'm reading as I read it. Here's what it says. This is Revelation 21, starting at verse nine. This is John writing again. He goes, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of the last seven plagues came to me and said to me, come and I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. Here's what he's talking about. We are called the bride of Christ. He's talking about the church. He's saying, I'm gonna show you what it's going to be like for followers of Jesus in the new heaven and the new earth. And it said this, and he carried me away in the spirit to a mountain great and high and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, And it shone with the glory of God and its brilliance was like that of a very precious jewel, like Jasper, clear as crystal. And it had a great high wall, listen, with 12 gates and with 12 angels at the gates. And on the gates were written the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And there were three gates on the east, three on the north, three on the south, and three on the west. And the walls of the city had 12 foundations and on them were the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. And the angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates and its walls. And the city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. And he measured the city with a rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length as wide as it was long. And the angel measured the wall using human measurement and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper and the city of pure gold as pure as glass. The foundations of the city were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the 10th turquoise, the 11th jacinth and the 12th amethyst. And at the 12 gates were 12 pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. And the street of the city was gold, as pure, as transparent as glass. And it says, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty, the Lamb, are its temple. And the city does not need the sun or moon to shine for its glory of God gives it light. And the Lamb is its lamp. And the nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. And I... And no day will its gates ever be shut. 
For there will be no night there, and the glory and the honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. Right, John is saying there is a day where we are going to enter through gates that will never close. And there will be no night and our son will be the glory of God himself and the lamb, Jesus Christ himself, will be the one radiating that glory. Now, listen, I have to be really, really clear with you. This is either true or it's not. This is either your future reality or it isn't. And all of it will be dependent on one thing. Have you entered the door of Jesus Christ? Have you put your faith in him? He promises that not only will we have safety and freedom here on earth, but that our eternity is with him in a city whose gates will never be closed because we will be safe for eternity. Jesus is saying, I am the door. Anyone who believes in me will be saved. Have you entered that door? Have you made that decision? Let's pray. Dearly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for your word. Thank you for very, very clear gospel presentation. God, forgive us for running to false hopes and to false gospels and to things that we think are going to solve problems that never seem to solve anything. God, would you protect us from trying to put our hope in our performance or in a checklist that's all about us? May we be people who genuinely love you. May we be people who delight in the fact that you know us, that you care for us, that you walk with us, that we have a relationship with you. May our hearts be set on fire, that we are your children and that we are the people of God. May that be something that impacts our lives. May we be people who bear good fruit in keeping in repentance. We love you. Would you help us? It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.